0: Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In our Culture Wars episode this week of May Day Celebrations, the Freedom of Expression Award on YouTube awarded to, well, YouTube for itself. And that censorship-happy website garnering a vast majority of listener dislikes
1: posted in response. You know how it's becoming harder and harder to tell reality from satire these days? Well, it's because of stuff like this.
2: Susan, I'm so honored to be able to present you tonight with a free expression award for your incredible leadership with YouTube. And I just want to say thank you for all the work that you've done to empower people around the world. Congrats on your very well-deserved award.
3: Thank you so much to the Freedom Forum for having me here today and for this award.
1: This is real. An award show on YouTube, sponsored by YouTube, giving YouTube's CEO of all things an award for freedom of expression. Memes are literally coming to life. And you'd need a lightsaber to cut through the irony in this case, which might explain the hilarious dislike ratio on the video. the last few years, YouTube has practically become synonymous with censorship, and funny thing is, they're not really even denying it. See, they just call it responsibility work. In her post-award interview, Susan Wojcicki, YouTube's CEO, took the time to explain the fundamentals of YouTube's work, the four R's of responsibility. The first R, I kid you not, is remove. You can't make this up. After receiving an award for free expression, the first thing she brags about is how they removed 9 million videos in the last quarter. That's 3 million videos a month. And all of that, or most of it, was done with fabulous machines. These are videos that allegedly broke YouTube's ever-changing terms of service, which at this point is so vague and open to interpretation that literally any video can be suddenly deemed unacceptably dangerous have an opinion on COVID? Banned! Hooray for free speech! The second R is Rise, which basically means boosting or recommending videos that have the right opinion, according to YouTube. So basically videos by mainstream media, corporations, their partners, you know, those guys that always tell the truth and never run a fake story. Third R is Reduce. This one's the best. This means ghosting or shadow banning or hiding videos that have not broken any rules that are completely fair game. YouTube just doesn't like them, so they make them impossible to find. So even if you're really careful about getting your thoughts out there, adhere to all of YouTube's ridiculous rules, avoid all the no-no words, you still might get shadow banned or censored if YouTube doesn't like your opinion.
3: Um, And then, you know, there's a lot of content that technically meets the spirit of what we're trying to do, but it is, uh, it's borderline. And so for that content, we um, will just reduce, meaning we're not going to recommend it uh, to our users.
1: And this has been happening to countless creators over the past few years. Subscribers magically disappear, videos don't show up in feeds of people who are subscribed, and so on. For a platform that prides itself on allowing diverse voices, there doesn't seem to be a lot of permissible variety when it comes to actual speech. The final R is reward, which is basically all about that ad money, making sure that people with the right opinions get it and the people with the wrong ones don't. Explain to me again how any of these principles have anything to do with free speech. The Freedom Forum Institute, which gave out this award, claims its mission is to foster First Amendment freedoms for all, but apparently they haven't actually read the text of the First Amendment. It literally says, Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. But I guess YouTube isn't Congress, so they can make all the laws they want, right? Well, then maybe they shouldn't pretend like they actually care about the First Amendment or free speech, and definitely not get awards for it. And thank you, RT's Dimitri Palk, for that
0: report. And coming up next on Arts Express, Rebel, a new dramatic series based on the life and work of famed environmental activist Erin Brockovich, who is also executive producer of the show, and our guest on Arts Express, who stars in the show as the lead investigator, is Tamila Jones, describing her Rebel character as, quote, Anything Rebel needs, I go and investigate, and if they need a little muscle, they call her, and she kicks butt. Jones also shares details about the time she was the first African-American female U.S. president in a music video. First, some scenes from the show, starring Katie Sagal as Rebel, then Tamala Jones. I won't go to work today. I'll stay here with you.
4: If you don't go to work, who's gonna save the world?
3: sticker and doing it anyway for profit I bring the CEOs of multinational corporations to their knees. my mom's energized by injustice oh hell yeah rebels on a tear is here. Oh, perfect timing. Mom's got to go get arrested. You know who to call? Of course I know who to call. Last time you said you knew who to call, you didn't call anyone. I ended up spending the whole day in jail. Mom, just go! I'm Annie Flynn Ray Bellow. Had too many husbands, picked up too many names. Most folks just call me Rebel.
5: Rebel. Rebel. Rebel.
3: Rebel. I bring corporations to their knees. 3,000 human beings in one Facebook group, all with the same autoimmune symptoms that didn't exist until they got their Stonemore heart valves.
6: Steps your
3: company's endangering human beings, and you know it. You run, and I'll be there to pick I can't live like this. I'm gonna help you. Innocent people are suffering and you have the power to stop it.
5: I need to work on something more cheerful.
3: Please, you're, you're working on a sex trafficking case, Cruz
1: these people mom just let it go
3: can you just can i what can i just watch three thousand people die no i can't the only way to get the valve off that market is to fight this case it's unwinnable sounds like a dare
2: i do not want whatever it is that you're selling
4: but she's saving the world
2: this is trespassing you can't be here my security team is on the way
3: how dare you how dare you
0: Hello and welcome.
7: Thank you so much. How are you?
0: I'm fine. How are you?
7: I'm good.
0: Okay, what was it about the show Rebel based on the life and activism of Erin Brockovich that led you to want to join up?
7: Uh, I will have to be honest and tell you it was, it was the fact that it was loosely based off of Erin Brockovich but the fact that uh, Katie Segal was playing her and that Krista Vernoff <laughs> was the showrunner, executive producer. Uh, these three women are are amazing energies uh, overall. I've been a big fan of Katie Segal. I love what Erin Brockovich does, and Krista Vernoff is is someone to be reckoned with in this business, and especially on ABC Network. I just love her work. Uh, I love her as an individual, so... I just wanted to work with these talented women and and learn something.
0: And what is your character up to in Rebel?
7: Well, my character, Lana Lee Ray, is Rebel's ex-sister-in-law. She works in Cruz's law firm, who's played by Andy Garcia. And she used to be a cop, but now she's a private investigator. And anything that Rebel needs, that Cruz needs, she goes and investigates. And if uh, they need a little muscle, they call her, and she goes and she mm-hmm. kicks butt.
0: And what are some of the political and economic issues that Rebel will be confronting on the shows?
7: Well, I can't say too much, but the first thing that we are touching on are faulty heart valves. Um, and that's a real thing, you know. When when things are working properly and big pharma wants to just keep going because they're making money and they don't really pay attention. We see these things all the time, you know, hip replacement, there's a lawsuit, a class action suit. So basically we're doing this with um, heart heart valves that are not, they're defective, Mm -hmm. but they put them in people anyway. And now it's causing problems and we got to go fix it.
0: Now, Erin Brockovich is listed as an executive producer of Ripple. What can you say about her role and impact on the show and the narratives? Um,
7: she is, she's definitely, see, the thing about Erin, she's still out in the field working. Mm-hmm. Even though we're doing a show about her, she's still doing what she does out in the field and, you know, be helping people and making sure things are, are right where, where they've been wrong. Um, so she'll show up here and there. She talks to Krista a lot, um, and basically she's sharing her life. And, and then Krista and the, the writing team, they go and, and come up with some juicy stuff and add a few things, and then we get a script. Um, but she loved what we do. You know, any time we, we talk to her as a whole, she loves it. She's very fun. Her energy is wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but she, she loves it. She loves being able to see
0: this. And speaking of which, did you get to meet her to get more insight into the show and your character?
7: I have not. um, Before the quarantine of the pandemic happened, uh, Katie and Krista were the only people that were able to see her in Mm -hmm. person. I, I think they went out for lunch. And then we got shut down. So I've only been able to meet her via Zoom. But I can't wait to meet her in person.
0: <laughs> and would you say that Erin Brockovich and learning about her has inspired you in your own life in any way?
7: Um she has and I think that that's going to happen when people watch the show you're going to be inspired but there's a thing that she turns on she clicks on inside of you your morality portion of your spirit and it's like oh I've done this type of work but I need to go further you know if there's something that's unjust or that just doesn't sit well with me Erin I don't know how she does it but she makes you feel like you got to get up and fight for what's right Mm -hmm. no matter what it is Um, (laughs) it could be uh, something that you see at the grocery store where that's happened to me, you know, recently when you know people aren't social distancing, and it's the old woman and this one guy was reaching over her, and I was like, "Excuse me, <laughs> sir, don't do that. Don't don't be rude." You know, so she's gave she's given me a little bit more muscle. Normally, I just would mind my own business, but you <laughs> know, something like this, you can't just mind your own business anymore. It's inspired me.
0: And is there anything else coming up for you next?
7: Well, right now I'm I'm really just getting back into the swing of things. Things are just now opening back up again in in our town in Hollywood. Um, so I haven't inked anything yet, but there is you know discussion um, beyond this show. You know, I've only been able to focus on this for a while, but some things are in the talks. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I
0: heard that you appeared in Rapper Webby's video, Independent, as President of the United States. Please explain.
7: (laughs) Yes, I did. Well, I'm I'm a huge fan of music. Um, I grew up in a musical home. I love everything from country and western, rock, classic rock, uh, jazz, all the way down to hip-hop, R&B, rap. Um, and I love Little Bootsy, and is it Bootsy, Little Bootsy, and Little Webby? Uh, I I thought they were great, you know, rappers from the South. Um, and they had a Miss Independent. I'm like, I don't know, is that a, a dig on independent women? Because I'm definitely one of those. Uh-huh. And they were like, No, we want to we want to feature you as the first female president. And I was like, Ooh, okay, uh-huh. yes, I'm in. Um, so yeah, I was the first female uh, president and, and a, a president of color in that video. That, I think, was 2003 mm. or four.
0: Speaking of which, what have been the challenges for you as a woman and as an African-American in the white male-run film world and prevailing?
7: Um, I think it's about attitude. Uh, for me... I was taught, uh, I went to acting school, I studied at Lee Strasberg, I was also taught by Blake Lively's parents who had, um, they were my managers for a long time, and they had an acting class that Brittany Murphy, Seth Green, Tara Reed, all these people, uh, John Huertes, who I work with on Castle, we came from there, and so what they taught us was not based on color or gender it was go in that room and do something that no one else will do. Mm. Go in that room and just go off, you know, um, in the audition room is what they meant. So I do that. um, And I go in with the clear head that all I got to do is my best. The rest of the stuff doesn't matter. Mm. And it worked out for me. I've been able to work with people like George Clooney and, and Chris Rock, and, and that's basically not having any walls built up to where I can't be or do whatever is asked of me. Mm. Um, Male-dominated, it's now becoming women-dominated. <laughs> you got Viola Davis, you got Michelle Pfeiffer, you got um, Ava DuVernay. I mean, there's so many women. You got Christopher Knox. You know, you've got Shonda Rhimes, there's so many women out here with their intelligence and dominating that part of Hollywood to where you gotta play with us on an equal plane. Mm-hmm. So I, felt, I feel I've been a part of, along with a lot of other actresses, of doing what we do and doing our best to where you're gonna respect us regardless.
0: And I see you've also ventured in producing why is that, and what projects do you contemplate developing in the future?
7: Um, I really had hopes of, of, and I still do, but it's just been a little bit challenging, and it's because of the music. I wanted to do the Tammy Terrell story. I had linked up with her, her sister, who's in charge of her estate, and uh, uh, the writer of the book, Tammy, and we. We're really trying to push this through, but unfortunately, it's going to take me and my own funds to to do this because Hollywood says no one's going to watch that. Mm. So it's just been hard, you know. Every yeah. time we got close, the the door slammed, and that's that's not anything that hasn't happened to me before. I've I've gotten no's before, and it's never stopped me. Mm. So that's the project that I. Um, I really want to do And I've not given up It's just been placed On the back burner And then I have uh, Some producer partners um, That I'm working with And we had a show That Needs a little tweaking Before we put it Back out there But we were looking To sell a show And it's Like the Come um, The Women of color Version of The first Wives club um, But what a Different in on it and then we got word that <laughs> Jill Scott was doing something like that so we got to tweak it and, and kind of change the premise but it was still a great story so as far as producing and writing these are some of the challenges that you're faced with um, in Hollywood that people don't really talk about mm. you know if you don't get to that idea first someone else is on it <laughs> so it's back to the drawing board so that's where I'm at right now, no disappointments, it just makes you stronger, and you got to keep going and maneuver around the best way you can, that's where I'm at as far as the things I want to do, I'm now looking for outside content that I'm not writing, um, I'm looking for writers that have some things that I would like to purchase, um, haven't seen anything yet, but I'm on the lookout, so that, that's what I'm doing right now as far as my producing is going.
0: And any last words about Rebel?
7: Rebel is like is unlike any show you've ever seen. Um, you, there's never been a show on television like this. There's never been a cast uh, um, like this with Andy Garcia, Katie Segal, John Corbett, James uh Lex Scott Davis is an amazing, young, talented woman who you've seen in a lot of stuff. Uh, you have all of these talented people and the storyline loosely based off of Aaron Brockovich and this wonderful producer, Christopher Knopf, and we're dealing with real-life situations, things that are going on right now in the world um, that people are definitely going to identify with. So you're going to have fun. You're going to cry. You're going to yell at that TV. You are going to be fully entertained, <laughs> and you won't want to miss anything. So you got to tune in.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Tamela Jones, for calling into our show.
7: Thank you. It was great talking to you.
0: Okay, bye.
7: <laughs> bye.
0: And Rebel is airing on ABC. And next up on Arts Express, in our May Day celebrations this week and beyond this month, a highlight from Marx in Soho, the late Eminent Howard Zinn's 1999 stage show.
6: They keep saying that capitalism has triumphed. Triumphed? Fuck! Because the stock market has risen to the sky and shareholders are even wealthier than they were before. Triumphed when one quarter of American children live in poverty and forty thousand of them die every year before their first birthday. One hundred people line up before dawn in New York City for 2,000 jobs. <laughs> what will happen to the 98,000 people who are turned away? Is that why you're building more prisons? Oh, yeah! Capitalism is triumph. But over whom? You have miracles of technology. You've sent men into their stratosphere. But what of the people remaining here on earth? Why are they so fearful? Why did they turn to drugs, to alcohol? Why did they go berserk and kill? It's all in your papers. And your politicians, blooded with pride, will say, oh, now the world will move to the free enterprise system. <laughs> Has everyone become stupid? Don't you know the history of the free enterprise system? When the governments did nothing for the people and everything for the rich? When your government gave 100 million acres of land free to the railroads and looked the other way as the Chinese immigrants and Irish immigrants working 12 hours a day building the railroads died in the heat and cold. And when the workers finally rebelled and went on strike, your government sent in the army to smash them into submission. Why did I write Das Kapital if I did not see the miseries of capitalism? of the free enterprise system. In England, little children were put to work in the textile mills because their tiny fingers could work through spindles. Here in America, young girls went to work in the mills of Massachusetts at age 10 and died at age 25. Cities were cesspools of poverty and vice. That is capitalism then and now.
0: Thank you, Bob Wick, as Karl Marx, whose birthday is celebrated this week on May 5th. And coming up next on the show, Bro on the Global Cultural Beat, presenting the Paris Commune, still going strong and challenging capitalism. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro takes us on a Memory Lane guided tour through the streets of Paris where it all went down until the bloody government repression the week of May 21, 1871, 150 years ago, and some of those many slain underground mass graves discovered while digging a Paris metro line in the present time.
2: This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's topic, the Paris Commune at 150, still going strong and challenging digital capitalism. Here in Paris, we're now living through the 150th anniversary of the Commune, identified by Karl Marx as perhaps the first workers' republic established in the history of humanity. The Commune lasted 71 days, beginning March 18, 1871, and ended in a violent repression during what was called the time of the cherries, of the budding of the cherry blossoms, in the bloody week of May 21st to 28. The Commune was a response by the Parisians to the end of a war the Emperor Louis-Napoleon had waged to distract the French from the corruption and negligence that characterized the latter stage of his second empire. The ill-fated war, ended by uniting the German states under Bismarck as the French military, also hollowed out by years of corruption, was quickly defeated. The German army then became an occupying army and laid siege to Paris, figuring to starve the city into submission. The French ruling class, industrialists and remnants of the old aristocracy, led by the emperor's minister, Adolphe Thiers, left the city and fled to the former palace of the king at Versailles, where they would soon collaborate with the Germans to crush the commune. Inside the city, a new form of government appeared, a direct democracy with elements of the National Guard on its side and with the working people of the city behind it and engaged directly in carrying out the reforms in health, education, and an equal status for women. Indeed, the face of the commune that has come down through history is that of the feminist Louise Michel, in the forefront of many of these reforms and upon the downfall of the commune, exiled from France. The commune defied the industrialists and issued proclamation after proclamation that pushed the government of Paris towards a worker state. The and the German collaborators he represented were furious and finally, with the aid of the German army, still encamped outside the city, moved to annihilate the rebellion, which he did in perhaps the bloodiest week of state terrorism in French history, other than the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of the Huguenots. Row after row of these working people were lined up and shot. The most sacred place commemorating the commune is the Mur de Federales, the wall of these victims inside the famous cemetery Père Lachaise. With the Commune in ruins, its proponents either dead or exiled, Thiers then proclaimed the birth of the French Republic, ending forever the attempts to re-establish the monarchy after it had originally been overthrown by the French Revolution. Indeed, French Republicans now proclaim the Commune as a founding moment in the establishing of a representative parliamentary democracy. However, that bourgeois democracy, with the industrialists now firmly back in power, was erected on the bones and coffins of the Parisian citizens who instead had instituted a direct democracy in which the people made decisions together. Battles over the memory of the Commune continue to be waged. Adolphe Thiers is commemorated in the traditional French manner by having streets and squares named after him in many French cities and towns. However, there is no street or square that bears his name in Paris, the site of his bloody executions." The Catholic Church, attacked for its corruption by the Commune as it was in the French Revolution, allied with the state to anoint the Church of Sacré-Cœur of the Sacred Heart, which overlooks the city and stands as a symbol of the triumph of the bourgeoisie. However, just below the Church, in a way that suggests the old specter of revolution is not dead, sits Louise michel Square with its commemoration of the Commune's leading spirit. Released to coincide with the 150th anniversary is a work by the French historian Michel Audin, which claims that Thierry's accounting of the dead is vastly understated. The official figure is over 6,000 casualties, but by checking cemetery records, this new book claims the figure as at least 15,000, and may have been as high as 20,000, with underground mass graves of the Communards still being discovered in the 20s in a building of the line of the Paris subway. The March 18th date was celebrated with great fanfare, but that celebration quickly gave way to its opposite, as the country readies itself for the 200th anniversary in May of the death of Napoleon, a symbol of empire and conquest, beloved by the right and no friend of democracy, whose nephew, founder of the Second Empire, named in honor of his uncle's self-proclaimed first empire, started the war that brought on the siege of Paris. Marx's valuing of the experiment of the commune, a spirit that is yet to be realized, points the way to why it remains at the same time a moment of hope for working people and a moment of fear for their new digital overlords, whether they be Jeff Bezos and Amazon, Elon Musk and Tesla, or Emmanuel Macron and his startup nation. And here's Marx. The value of these great social experiments cannot be overrated. By deed instead of by argument, they have shown that production on a large scale and in accord with the behests of modern science may be carried on without the existence of a class of masters. That to bear fruit, the means of labor need not be monopolized as a means of dominion over and of extortion against the laboring man and woman. And that, like slave labor, like serf labor, hired labor, is but a transitory and inferior form, destined to disappear before associated or communal labor, plying its toil with a willing hand, a ready mind, and a joyous heart. This is Bro on the global cultural beat, breaking glass.
0: I'm Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. express,"
4: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Frida Kahlo is an artist whose paintings and life have captured the imagination of millions. A new book, Frida Kahlo, The Last Interview and Other Conversations, has recently been published by Melville House Publishing with an introduction by Hayden Herrera, art historian and critic. Herrera's biography, Frida, was the basis for the film Frida. I'm happy to be speaking with Hayden Herrera. Hi, Hayden. Yes, hello, Jack. It's very good to talk to you. Hayden, when did you first encounter Frida Kahlo's work in life and what drew you in?
8: I was a graduate student and what happened was one of my teachers, his name was Max Kozloff. He, he was in Mexico with his wife, Joyce Kosloff, a painter. And I saw them for supper and they met me at the door with a Frida Kahlo catalogue from 1968 Olympics in Mexico. And Max said, why don't you write an article for Art Forum? And it was also for an independent studies project. I thought, well, yeah, I will. There was a show in Mexico City. So I went to Mexico City and saw the show and was just bowled over by it. i would never seen her work before. Art history then was very Eurocentric. Anyway, I wrote the article. And then somebody at Harper & Row uh, asked me to write a biography and uh, it was published by Harper Harper and Rowe in 1983.
4: What made Callow's life and work a kind of icon among some feminists?
8: Um, So many reasons. First of all, her strength in relationship to having such a powerful husband, the fact that she painted in, in a very different way. Her strength in adversity, I mean, she had... Terrible health problems, you know, numerous surgeries and stemming from when she was a teenager. It was her sort of ability to deal with suffering with what Mexicans call alegría, insistence on joy in the face of pain. I think that's the main thing. And then the other thing is that her work is so incredibly personal, so self-revealing. People were sort of shocked. A lot of people found it almost too self-revealing.
4: You write that her works are an autobiography in paint, and you talk about the revelations. Could you take us on a little trip through her life as depicted in her paintings?
8: Sure. The first painting that had to do with her life was actually painted in 1932 in Detroit. It's called My Birth, and it shows a woman giving birth but both the mother and the child are dead. Frida had just had a miscarriage. Um, and also while she was working on the painting, her mother died in Mexico. So that was this sort of double death, not at all a joyous painting and really a hard, hard to look at, very, very brave. Anyway, so that's her birth. She was born in 1907 in Coyoacán her mother was very Catholic. Her father was a German immigré to Mexico in the late 19th century, and he was a photographer. She also helped him with retouching his photographs. That was her first use of a brush. And I think her father's work also had an influence on her in that he did an awful lot of portraits. And I think the fact that he did portraits and self-portraits probably had a strong influence on Frida. So when she was sort of seven or eight, she got polio. Her father helped cure her and got her to do a lot of exercises that were unusual for a girl at that time. So then she went to the National Preparatory School in the middle of Mexico City. Um, Frida Kahlo's particular mischief was aimed at the muralist Diego Rivera, who was already the most famous of the three great Mexican muralists. And he was busy painting his first mural in her school's auditorium. So what she did was soaped the steps that he had to climb every day to get up to paint his mural, and he never fell because he was actually, (laughs) even though an elephant-sized man, he um, had a lot of grace. Okay, then came the terrible accident. She was 19 by then, and she was in a bus, which was crashed into by a trolley. They were old wooden buses then, and they it just broke in half. A metal bar went through her pelvis. She broke bones in her legs and her pelvis, and ribs and everything. She was a mess. But she got back from the hospital. She was in bed, and her mother organized a kind of easel so that she could paint in bed. When... Frida got strong enough to walk around. She took her first paintings to show to Diego Rivera, who was then at work in the Ministry of Education. She told him that she'd come not to flirt, but she wanted his true opinion of her work. He was impressed by the work. He was also impressed by Frida. And then she asked him to come see more of her work. The following Sunday in Coyoacan, he came, and then a courtship began, and... They were um, married in 1929. Her mother did not approve of Diego Rivera, and her mother was horrified. She made this famous quote of, it's like the marriage between an elephant and a
4: dove. Now, at this point, when she's marrying Diego Rivera, is she painting? She's painting through this, right?
8: Yes, she took those paintings to show him. She continued to paint it. Once in 1929, when she became a girlfriend and then married Diego Rivera, Mm. her paintings change a lot. They actually actually are influenced by Diego Rivera, her
4: husband. Tell us about the before and after, then.
8: Her first self-portrait from 1926. It's quite big, and she couldn't have done it in bed, but she did it at home. And it's a, a painting that has a kind of... Pre Renaissance look to it. She is in a red velvet dress. It's very dark behind, very, very dark. It's, it has no Mexican influence at all. It really is kind of a marvelous painting, and I don't, I don't <laughs> the way it sort of looks like Modigliani.
4: And then her style changes.
8: Yes. In 1929, it changes. And um, if you compare her second self portrait, to the first one for, that she did when she was still pretty sick, it's like n- night and day. And they're suddenly very bright. She's standing there looking very confident. She's sh- taken on Mexican, clearly Mexican clothes and jewelry, and and they're very bright. And she takes on this um, thing of mexicanidad or mexicanismo, which was Mexicanism, which was a a sort of almost like a faith adopted by artists, intellectuals, um, musicians, movie makers, after the Mexican Revolution ended in 1920. Her first uh, work before she got to know Rivera had none of that Mexicanismo.
4: Rivera was commissioned to do some paintings for Rockefeller and other capitalists, right? And they came to the United States. What was her Reaction to living in Detroit and San Francisco?
8: Oh, she did not like the United States at all. First, it was New York because Diego Rivera had one of the very first shows at the new Museum of Modern Art. And then they went to San Francisco uh, where he was painting, funnily enough, a mural in the Stock Exchange. Good idea for a communist. Uh, They went to Detroit in 1932. Frida was already about a month pregnant. On July 4th, she had a very dangerous uh, hemorrhage and was in the hospital for uh, like 13 days, I believe it was. Um, She was very miserable and unhappy. She came home. And then it was actually Rivera who suggested that she paint scenes from her own life and also to do them on retablos, um, these small pieces of tin. So that is when, in Detroit, Her paintings become this incredibly brave, incredibly personal um, imagery. It really starts there. The first one she did after she got out of the hospital is called Henry Ford Hospital. And she is lying on a hospital bed that's floating in a vast, empty plain. A lot of her paintings have to do with isolation and loneliness. In the very distance is the Ford River Rouge plant. That painting, she's lying there in bed, hemorrhaging. As a nude, it is not at all seen from a male point of view. It's seen from the point of view of actually of the woman that she's painting. Um, it is a self-portrait, but it's, it's an agonized self-portrait. Of She's crying. She's surrounded by these six symbols of miscarriage, and there she's... Each one attached to her by a what looks like an umbilical cord or a ribbon, but it could be both. Um, and her sense of loneliness, I think, is and sorrow is um, very very strong in this painting. It's a it's a powerful painting and a very very sad one. She hated Detroit. She basically thought Americans looked like unbaked bolillos, which are rolls, and. Um, <laughs> Anyway, she was longing to go back to Mexico, but in fact, they went to New York where Rivera was commissioned to do the Rockefeller Center mural. And while he was doing that, she worked on a small painting called Where My Dress Hangs. And what she's actually painted just her Tejuan dress, And all around her is New York aspects of it that she does not like. And then It has the steps of Federal Hall with a graph that says weekly sales in millions and that's on Federal Hall. And then Federal Hall is attached to uh, Trinity Church and then in the window of Trinity Church, it's stained glass window, has a dollar sign. Anyway, in the far distance, there's a boat (laughs) and I think Frida Kahler wished that she was on that boat. Um, When they got back, Her health was terrible, but his was also bad. And he was furious with her for making him go back. And he retaliated by having an affair with her younger sister, uh, Christina, who was the person probably closest to Frida in the world. And Frida knew about it, and they separated. She and Rivera separated. Frida went to live in an apartment in the middle of Mexico City. And then finally, she forgave him, and she forgave her sister, and they got back together.
4: It was a contradiction. A woman in such a, and I guess I have to call it a dependent position in this relationship— that she would become a feminist icon, oh,
8: yes, that is yeah. is the one thing that the feminists never quite get is why she continued to stay with Rivera, why she loved him, while he why he was the most important thing in her life,
4: even as a as the naive viewer that I am, when I look at that painting, Diego and I, uh, that's the most sad and touching painting uh, of hers i've I've ever seen. It's. <laughs>
8: That's the one from 1949.
4: Well, it's Which the one where they've each got three eyes. They've all got the third eye, and her third eye is Diego. So that they're, they're clearly soulmates, but she's got tears in her eyes.
8: That was when he almost left her, almost divorced her to marry Maria Felix, a beautiful Mexican film star. Ah. That is the one painting in which she really almost loses it. I mean, she's crying. Her hair is flying around in a tormented way. She just about loses her, her mask-like implacability. I mean, she almost all the other self-portraits, she's under total self-control.
4: Uh, I, I know that Kahlo considered herself a socialist and a communist throughout her life. Mm-hmm. Um, at age 16, she had joined the Youth movement of the Mexican Communist Party. And then, of course, when she died, her coffin was draped with a flag of the Mexican Communist Party. So how did her socialist sentiment show up in her painting?
8: In terms of being political, it was really just the, her affirmation of her love for everything Mexican and the Mexican dispossessed, and her passion for Mexican popular culture that was in itself political. Even her wearing the Mexican costumes was political. But it was only at the end of her life, when Rivera was trying to get back into the Communist Party, because he was expelled in 1929, that her paintings became political. There's one of Stalin, and then there's her last painting, is Marxism Will Give Health to the Sick. And it's a self-portrait in which Marx is flying in the sky like like the holy image in a retablo, and she's standing there uh, casting aside her crutches. It's very badly painted because she'd been incredibly sick and actually had to be tied to her wheelchair to paint um, and couldn't do it for very long. So her brushstrokes no longer are those refined, beautiful brushstrokes. But it's a compelling painting anyway for her ferocity of spirit.
4: So much of her painting was about her suffering. What do you think Kahlo's life would have been like without that bus accident?
8: You know, the accident was what made her a painter. And pain repelled her to paint it, her pain. I mean, it gave her the energy to paint these extraordinary images.
4: What do you see as Kahlo's artistic legacy?
8: Well, she's still revered as being almost like almost like a goddess, I think. I hope that it's the paintings that give that passion for Frida. I hope it's not just her life. But, of course, her life is in the paintings, so I think it's both. I mean, um, her legacy in terms of art history, there was a whole group of Mexican painters in the 1980s who followed her example in making extraordinarily personal Self-portraits, which is something that really hadn't been done that much in Mexico. And a lot of women artists in the United States have been hugely influenced by Frida Call. So there's there's that too.
4: You mentioned in the book that her work for the most part was unnoticed outside of Mexico until 1970. Why was that?
8: Because the seven mid-seventies feminism was very, very strong, and feminist artists picked up on Frida when they got to know about her. Um, I did an exhibition in 1978 of Frida Kahlo that traveled all over the country and people responded to it really wildly positive. There, also the Chicano movement, they t- took up Frida as a kind of icon and as a strength-giving idea of a person who dealt with adversity with strength and happiness, and joy, and color, I suppose that all human beings have a certain amount of suffering, and that is probably, they feel understood when they see Frida Kahlo's paintings, and there's a kind of, I don't know, relief in finding out that something horrible has happened out there, and the person has managed to survive.
4: Well, thanks so much, Hayden. I've been talking with Hayden Herrera, who has written an introduction to the newly released Frida Kahlo, the last interview and other conversations published by Melville House. Hayden Herrera is also the author of Frida, a biography of Frida Kahlo, and an upcoming memoir this June titled Upper Bohemia. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
0: music you heard was La Santunga, performed by Lila Downs. And we'll go out now with some additional music for May Day, performed by Tony Babino and introduced by Michael Moore from his 2009 film Capitalism, A Love Story. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.
6: I remember thinking during the Katrina Flood, why is it always the poor who have to suffer the misery? Why isn't it ever Bernie Madoff up on the roof screaming for help? Or the head of Citibank? Or the hedge fund guys at Goldman Sachs? Or the CEO at AIG? It never is these guys, is it? It's always those who never got a slice of the pie, because these men took it all and left them with nothing left them to die. I refuse to live in a country like this, and I'm not leaving. You know, I can't really do this anymore, unless those of you who are watching this want to join me. I hope you will. And please, speed it up.
5: rise workers from your slumber, Arise, you prisoners of want That's right For reason in revolt now thunder Chains of hatred, greed, and fear ha, ha. Away with all your superstitions Serve our masses Arise, arise We'll change transport the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize So comrades Come on and rally, then the last fight let us face, the international unites, the whole darn human race, so comrades, come on, let's go rally, and the last fight let us face. On tyrants only will make war The soldiers too will take strike action They'll break ranks and fight no more And if those cannibals keep trying To sacrifice us to their pride Each at the four must do their time Come on, let's go rally. And the last fight, let us face. The International unites the whole beautiful human race. So comrades, come on, let's go rally. And the last fight, let us face. The International unites the whole...